Thank you, team. Wonderful job. Our chapel speaker this morning is Dr. David Sharps, graduated from Mid-American Nazarene University in 1984 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Practical Theology. He went on to earn a Master of Divinity degree at Nazarene Theological Seminary and later a Doctor of Ministry from Fuller Theological Seminary. He has pastored churches in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Arizona, and in January of this year, he began his role as Upstate New York District Superintendent for the Church of the Nazarene. So a district superintendent, yes... So a district, thank you. So a district superintendent in the church in Arizona would be similar. Some of you have bishops or highest reverends or uh, something along those lines. So that's what a district superintendent is, and he's taking some of his uh, upstate district uh, Nazarene students out to lunch today. I encourage him to take anyone who lived upstate out to lunch, uh, but he didn't have that in the budget, so I apologize for that. Uh, he and his wife Carolyn have two children, Jonathan and Hannah. Will you please welcome Dr. David Sharps? Yeah, I wish I was a Red Sox fan this morning, and everybody would go, yeah, I might have all kinds of good ways to connect with you today, and you'd be all excited about that, but uh, I will say this, I am a Detroit Tigers hater, so it was good to see what the Red Sox uh, took care of for me, so I, at least I can express my appreciation, having grown up in Ohio and been a Cincinnati Reds fan almost all of my life, oh, represent there, and upstaters, yeah, raise your hand, okay, good, awesome, good, and back there in the back as well, great to see you this morning. Uh, privilege, yeah, for me to speak in chapel at ENC. I'm really excited to have a chance just to share a couple things with you this morning. Uh, I was thinking about uh, when we lived in the Northeast before, when my son was a senior in high school, Jonathan, who was mentioned a moment ago, was a senior in high school. I got a call about moving to a church in Phoenix, Arizona. And I thought to myself, who would ever want to live in the desert? Uh, seriously. And so I flew out there, and, and that church invited me to come and I sensed that God was really in it. So I responded in a particular way, and, and one of the barriers for us was my son being a senior in high school who had another semester of school to finish. And so um, I said to them, I don't think this is really going to work because my son uh, is still a senior in high school, and I just cannot be present with him in that last semester. So they said to me, now think about this for a minute, Philadelphia Phoenix, they said, what if you would, were to commute? And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, what if every week or so you flew back to Philadelphia and you could be with your family and then you came back out and pastored through the week? And I said, you'd do that? And they said, yeah, we'd love to, sort of. And so I said, absolutely, we'll do that. So that's what I did. Bottom line is I had all these flight miles. It was crazy the number of flight miles I had. I decided for myself that I was not going to waste even one moment getting on the airplane, but I was asking God at different times, God, give me what I called divine appointments. If someone sat next to me and there was an opportunity, they were hurting, help me in, to be an incarnation and relationally to connect with people around me. And just have a chance maybe to plant some seed about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. However that worked out, sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. But one time in particular was very vivid for me. I'd gotten on the airplane, and the flight attendant had said, well, the flight's going to be full. Every seat's going to be filled. So you hear that regular story. And so I'm sitting there, and I had one of those infamous middle seats. You ever had the middle seat? You know what I'm talking about? Hate the middle seat. So I'm in the middle seat. I'm waiting, thinking the flight's full. On the right, right, on the window is a lady of some generous proportion. So she's sharing part of my seat with me. And, and I'm waiting for someone not to show up to the aisle seat so I can scoot over, right? I want to move over. And so they're ready to close the door. And the only open seat on the entire airplane is the one next to me. So I'm pretty excited about that, actually. And I thought to myself, thank you, because I wasn't really feeling like talking about Jesus in that moment anyway. I was kind of tired wanted to sleep. So you never felt that way, I know. But anyway, so someone then, they are getting ready to close the door. And pretty soon this guy comes through the door, hurrying, 
panting, his, his clothes are somewhat disheveled, his hair is all messed up, he's got a duffel bag in his hand. He plops down the only seat next to me and looks at me and exhales on me with this, how you doing, which told me a lot about what had happened the night before with him. So I, he stuffed the duffel bag under the seat in front of him and uh, he begins, he looks at me and, and gives me the old elbow, the kind of this, this guy elbow thing, and he says to me, so how was your night last night? And I said, well, it was, it was fine. And he said, let me tell you about mine. So he said, I was at the casino last night and I'm winning some money, and I'm looking across the table. I make eye contact with this young lady across the table, and uh, she pretty soon comes around to my side of the table, and, and we're, I teach her some things, and I'm giving her some money. We have this conversation, and he's getting to some pretty uncomfortable level for me in somewhat of detail, and finally he looks at me, and he says, hey, man, you want to see something? And I said, Maybe. And he pulls out the duffel bag, he unzips it and opens it up. It's stuffed with cash. He said, there's about 13000 cash in here for what I wanted at the table last night. He zips it closed, stuffs it back under the seat. He looks at me and he says, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> which, which is not a question I like as a pastor. In fact, I've begun to kind of subtly kind of work my way to the detail of the whole thing. I said, well, I teach. I do. And he said, well, what do you teach? <clears throat> about the Bible. Really? Where do you teach the Bible? At a church. Oh, so you're a pastor, yeah? And then here's what happens, which I, which, I, which I cannot stand. He goes religious on me. He goes from authentic to religious. All of a sudden he goes, oh, yeah, he goes, um, yeah, my, my grandma's on, on the session, of uh, the, the church board at my Presbyterian church where I go a couple times a year. And, and when I was in uh, like eighth grade, I went forward at a Bible school and prayed the prayer and so he goes religious on me for a while, and I'm, I'm kind of affirming some things and not affirming some things as he's talking. And, and he said all this even before we'd taken off. And so he, in somewhat an uncomfortable fashion, he, he sits and faces forward. And then as we're taxiing, he, he lays his head back, and he, and he begins to fall asleep. And as we're departing, the, the plane kind of shakes a little bump, and he wakes up again, and he looks over at me, and, and he says, um, so, you know, we got three-and-a-half-hour flight to Charlotte before we turn and head up. He's up on his way to New Hampshire on my way to Philly, and he says... Um, so can I ask you a couple questions? I said, sure. He said, you know, I was dating this gal from Providence, Rhode Island, and, and she'd been married before and had a kid. And, and he said, and, and she went to church, and, and she told me she was a Christian. And she said, he said, as we were dating, the, and the relationship was getting a little more intense and a little more serious, he said, uh, one day she came and just broke up with me. And she just said, you know what, I can't keep dating you because you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. And and he said, and then she just kind of got in the car and, and drove off. And he said, I was left wondering, what does she mean? Of course I'm a Christian. I was born in America. My grandma's on the board at the church. And I prayed the prayer and got the, the salvation trophy, right, that, that you get, the certificate. And I hung it on the wall. And, and you know, I, I know that I prayed the prayer. I, I did the transaction conversation. And he said, no, nah, but I'm thinking to myself, what, I just need to ask, what do you think she meant by the fact that I'm not a Christian? And he just kind of kicked the door open. And so we began to have this conversation. And God began to use an opportunity that I never anticipated through a really uncomfortable beginning story to create some opportunity. And as we're coming toward closer to Charlotte, he says to me, uh, he goes, do you have a little more time to talk about that whole thing? And I said, yeah, I would love to talk about that a little more. He said, how much time do you have? I said, I got an hour. He said, yeah, me too. He goes, can we go to Chili's? I'll buy you a beer. And we'll, um, we'll have, I said, well, you know, I'm on the wagon, so I can't do that. But you can, we can talk about uh, what that's all about. And so we sat and talked for another hour, and he developed software for um, a company that does uh, analyze golf swings. And so we, he came to Phoenix a lot, so we've developed a relationship. And he came to our church Easter Sunday, and 
he began his work, his way closer and closer to a conversation of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. And, and um, I, I got, have this concern sometimes in these days, um, and, and, and I teach at our seminary, I teach evangelism at our seminary, and I, I kind of migrated there with a conversation with the president at the time, saying, you know, I'm kind of concerned that this whole issue of the gospel, while presence is vital and important, I believe in incarnational, relational, living it out before people. In fact, I believe that the opposite has been true for such a long time. It was kind of the transactional pray the prayer, and there was not a life-on-life, breath-on-breath, face-to-face, nose-to-nose conversation about authentic authentically who you are and what questions you might have about Jesus Christ. But I also have this concern about the issue of proclamation. It bothers me sometimes that maybe, at least I can be, afraid to give an answer for the reason for the faith that I, that I have. And so I believe that presence and proclamation are both vital for, for the Christian life. In fact, I believe for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ that there are two things that God calls us to. And when I was thinking about a message for you this morning or to share with you this morning, I thought about this very message in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to listen in on a guy named Peter. And Peter is a guy that was nervous about Jesus before, but he's gotten really emboldened because the Holy Spirit's come, filled his life because he did what Christ asked him to do. He went to the upper room with others and he waited to hear. And now a guy that was nervous about a little girl standing saying, aren't you a follower of Jesus Christ at the time of the crucifixion? After the uh, resurrected Christ has come, bodily resurrected Christ has come and, and the Holy Spirit's come upon him. He's gotten really bold about this issue of proclamation and sharing the good news of the gospel. And so here's what it said. I'm going to jump kind of in the middle of his message uh, at verse 32 and read down through uh, verse 41. The word of the Lord. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of that fact. Exalted the right hand of God. Christ has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And here, here's, the, here's the verse I want you to kind of hone in on with me. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. With many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. There's no question. Historians will verify the fact that the church, from that point forward, just exploded. Now, I know there were martyrdom times and seasons, but the church just exploded the Christian faith all across the Roman Empire. And, and historians will say there are various reasons for that. Some will say things, for example, the outline will say, like, Christians died well. In fact, they, they died very well in the Colosseum because of their faith in Christ. There was this credibility about their lives because they faced death with this deep assurance and this noticeable peace about their lives. Historians will also notice that Christians included everyone. The reason it spread so much is that Christians were very inclusive. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for the Greeks. It wasn't just for smart, particular socioeconomic levels of people that more easily accessed the Christian faith. Everyone was welcome. Christians included everyone, royals and slaves. In fact, women were never second-class citizens in the work of the kingdom of God. The third thing historians will say is they noticed that Christians cared about hurting people. The Emperor Julian, the quote there on the screen will say,
We can't stop these Christians. The reason they're so popular is that while the Jews take care of the Jewish poor, the Greeks take care of the Greek poor, the Romans take care of the Roman poor, the Christians take care of all the poor, giving most of their money away and living very simple lives. So when I thought about this, I thought, well, that could be the reason for the spread of the faith. Likely that's exactly part of the story. The presence of the people of God being salt dug into the very culture, salt and light, where they're already busy and influential, living their lives by the work of, of God, guided their lives, not as students who are Christians or attorneys who are Christians or teachers who are Christians, but as Christian students, as, as Christian teachers, as Christian attorneys, their very lives identified by the statement that they are Christian, and this is what they do with their lives. But, but a guy named Kenneth Scott Latterette, who I had to read in church history way back in the day in seminary. And in fact, I used to think to myself, I don't know I'm going to ever want to use this in any kind of preaching or practical ministry, but it is very, very vital. Latterette writes these, these words. He says, the more I study the factors that seem to account for the extraordinary spread of Christianity, it's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have really occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unequaled in history. Exactly why or how this occurred may lie outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. An unequaled release of energy. That the Spirit of God came down. And the people of God became the dwelling place of God. To minister in the name of Christ and in the power of the Spirit. To be gathered together as the bride of Christ in this reign of the kingdom of God in this world. That it might be on earth as it is in heaven. And so that whenever the Christian message is preached, the Spirit comes down and attends that message. And that's why at Pentecost and later on all through the Roman Empire, that when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 verse 37, the Bible says that when the people heard this, not only saw it, That's important. It's vital. In fact, there would be a great inconsistency, a a line that said that's hypocrisy if with our mouths we professed one thing and with our lives lived a different way. But I've got this concern these days in my heart and in my mind sometimes that we've talked about being salt and light and being the incarnational, relational, very presence of God in this world. But, But I begin to wonder, does that also mean that we're also the proclaimers? Because the Bible says the tongue has the very power of life and death. And our words can actually stir life in the lives of others, or they can be death to those that are around us. And so I ask myself that question. Saul, verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, then they were cut to the heart. And when they were cut, and the Spirit attended the message, their response what do we do with this? No, it was more like this. What, what do we do with what we just heard? Which is just what Jesus had told his disciples would happen. He said in John 16, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment to convict, to, to cut, if you will. It is to say, let's cross-examine something. Let's look at it until we see and see ourselves in the midst of what we hear, and align ourselves with the truth that we're opening our hearts and our minds to, and then ask, how do we respond? What must we do? Now, it's not likely that Peter is super eloquent. He's not really known for that through the Scripture. But if I began to look and think, what was the cutting all about? There was something 
something in the message, something in the truth and the rightness of what he shared, something that, that was empowered by the Spirit but resonated and landed in a way in which the people that heard it that, that likely should have not responded in such a positive way couldn't help but receive and then ask and plead literally for what does it mean then how do I respond to this? And when they heard, they realized something. They realized that they were made for more in the ways in which they had been living their lives. What cut? Three things, I think. First one is this. I think the power of Christ cuts. Acts 2, 22, the word says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among, among you through him as you yourselves know. I, I watched that and I've noticed all my life different times and had time to share with you a story of watching a guy healed at Fuller Theological Seminary and I was there doing some postgraduate work and our professor j- just said to us, would you, would you uh, if you'd like to be healed, if you believe God can physically heal, I want you to come down and we had one guy, was a Salvation Army uh, lieutenant from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and he came down and he sat in the chair and two intercessors, ladies that were uh, ordained elders from the United Methodist Church got on either side began to pray And the fact of the matter is, in the church in which I grew up, usually we would pray for healing at the altar. But when someone wasn't healed, we would usually start out by saying something like this. And this is true, by the way. It's true to say that if God, if you do not heal the way in which we're asking you to heal, we're leaving this in your hands. This is according to your sovereign will as you choose to move over this person's body. But what I heard as a teenager was this. God, when you don't heal this person, now we have an out. That's what I heard. And so when he said, if you have faith to believe this guy can be healed in this class, I thought to myself, I don't think I have faith to believe this guy can be healed. I didn't want to mess up his healing. Now, this is bad theology, by the way. So I didn't want to mess up his healing by staying in the room. So I thought, maybe I should go back to bed, you know. So I'm standing there thinking, so I decided this. I decided to stay halfway and believe enough at least to stay and observe, but not get so close that I've messed something up. How foolish is that? But anyway, that's what I thought. And here's what happened. This guy sat down. His feet were about four inches different. His legs different in length. From an accident he'd had when he was eight years old in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. As he sat there and as the professor got down and prayed, I watched this guy's feet come even. And, and honestly, this is what I thought. This is how lack of, what lack of faith I had. I thought to myself, he shifted in his chair. That's what I thought. But then that brother got up and tears streaming down his face, stood up and walked straight the rest of the two weeks of class that we had there in Pasadena, California. I remember climbing back on the plane and thinking to myself, God... Please forgive me for ever not allowing God for you to be God when you choose to move. To ever pray a prayer of faith that had a catch in my mind that you could not do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And what I see here in this first cause is a cause that Peter proclaimed and says, No, the God that spoke a world into existence cares about you and wants to intersect places in your life where you may need a miracle. The second thing is the truth of Christ, I see there. And there's evidence, he says, that cuts right to the heart. And let me move quickly now, because I know you've got to go to class, right? Move quickly on this, but he speaks the message that says to think about it. God raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. He said there's evidence for this fact, and you know as well as I do, that we need to be apologists these days for the Christian faith. With our lives and with our words, I think that's why Peter himself later on will say, be ready to give an answer for the faith that you have. You need to be able to somehow verbalize something. And in fact, let me just say this. If the only thing that you know to respond with is your testimony, the greatest thing you have is your testimony, how Christ has changed your life. You may not be able to take them through the Roman road or whatever other way you think you got to tell them about Christ. 
You may not say I'm inadequate and say you've got to come to my church and hear what my pastor says. But if you tell them how Christ has changed your life, that is a story, that is truth, that is your story to share. And when you begin to share the truth and that story of God that's intersected your story begins to run into their story, there's transformational power in the proclamation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third cause I see here is this, the love of Christ. He points it out in verses, verse 36. Therefore, let Israel be assured of this God. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And he points out the fact that that Christ that hung on the cross is indeed the one that loves you so much. And it's not only a word for all, it is for all. But Peter knows also it's particularly for him. He remembers at the point of the crucifixion, it's pointed out by Luke, when the Bible says that Christ turned and looked at Peter. And the thing I love about that part of the story is when I think about Peter's denial, and I kind of cross that against you know, what, uh, what, how Judas responded to his betrayal and how Peter responded to his betrayal. Aren't you thankful for the truth this morning, the love of God, no matter where you've been, what you've done, that when that truth is spoken over you and you receive it into your spirit, not just with your mind, it sinks down your neck and you accept it in your heart, and God cuts your heart and lets you know you're made for more, that the transformational power of the Holy Spirit is still active and still available for each and every one of us today. And there's a third cause that's there, and I think it's so clear. Well, I have to ask myself, if those are the causes and those are the things, then what does it mean for us to be cut? If I were there that time and he preached that message and I heard the truth and I saw what he was sharing in that day and the Holy Spirit accompanied the message and it resonated to me that was indeed the word of God for me, what's the response to something like that? They asked the question. It's a question I asked of this text. I think the first thing I see here is pretty clear, and it's in verse 38 of chapter 2, repentance. Repentance for our healing, forgiveness for what we've done. Like I said a moment ago, Peter wasn't the only betrayer, Judas was too. What was the difference? Peter saw the point of the story, the entire point of the story. He saw it all the way to the cross, he saw it all the way to the resurrection. It wasn't just guilt. That caused Jesus to take his life, but, but he misunderstood the love and the compassion of his Savior that looks at each and every one of us from the cross. And when he was impacted by that, he embraced the repentance and laid his life down and gave himself to that. Second thing I see here that we need to know is that there's also freedom from the power of sin. I think it's freedom to be truly human, to live in what God imagined for us in the first place. You know, the scripture is very clear in Genesis 1 that we're created in the very image of God. And ever since that Fall in Genesis chapter 3, God's been in this restoration, reconciliation process to restore that image inside of each and every one of us. It says to you and to me that we are covered with the very fingerprints of God in our life. And God desires for us to embrace what he offers us. And we can only do that by allowing repentance and, and forgiveness to come to our lives. You know, repentance is in my, in my heart's mind and in my thinking is repentance is at one time we're walking in this direction. See, being, being guilty is when you're walking this way and you feel bad for what you've done and saying you're sorry. But repentance says, I was walking in this direction, but now in forgiveness, I'm realizing God's made me for more. I'm changing the trajectory, the direction of my walk. No, I'm going this direction. No, I'm turning my back on those things and heading this direction, living my life for the things of God and letting God define for me what it means to be truly human and to see the image of God restored in my heart and in my life. So there's freedom I believe, from the power of the sin that maybe encompasses or surrounds our lives. I also think it's important to understand that the result of being cut, if you ask the question, is the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. To make him 
the Lord. Now, I think there are two kinds of people that comply with the law of God. There's those that comply because it looks practical. I'll tell you the truth. If it looks practical, then if it's a good idea to be sexually pure, if it's a good idea not to drink and drive, it's a good idea to be this, this, and this, then maybe I'll follow. But when it comes to sacrifice, when it comes to perceiving that we have to lay some things down and take us off the throne and put God on the throne, and if there's an if in that, and anywhere in our surrender to God, then I'm wondering if it is true in full obedience. I wonder if you've experienced the lordship of Christ, or I've experienced it, if I have ifs in my life. Well, God, I will follow you if this goes well. I will follow you if you heal my mother. I will follow you if you bless my ministry. I'll follow you if I get an A on this test. I don't know what it is, right? Whatever the if is there, then it's not a surrendered life. You got to get the if out. And you got to put Jesus on the throne and not if, it's well, whatever, God. You're in charge. And I'm going to trust you even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't have to fear evil when the presence of God is walking with me. And so if you're asking what it means to be cut, the question would be to you this morning is this. Is he Lord of your life? And the third thing I love about being cut, if you really have been cut, is that you're added to the family of God into the life of the church. You may be moving away, maybe you've moved away from church, and you know what, I get it. Believe me, maybe even more as a district superintendent now, meeting with churches all over, not just in upstate, but other places as well. I see how sometimes the church can be a disappointment. I get the fact that, that um, sometimes the church hasn't lived up to everything that God desired for it to be. But here's what I want to challenge you with. Because I have this deep, deep resonating concern for the church. For the very fact that there have been things and mechanistic ways we've tried to approach what it means to get more people in the door and offer this transactional feel to the gospel. But here's what I believe, and I probably see it very clearly in my son, who's 26 years old. And when I see it and hear it in his voice that his desire is to see the church different, to see the church really live out her mission in the way in which God designed the church to live out our mission. So I would say this to you this morning. It's not a matter of rejecting the church. It's a matter of you stepping into the church and being the people that come and make the difference in the life of the church. Because I want to say something to you this morning. If your heart's been truly cut, and if you have a love for the people of God, it's okay sometimes to critique a little bit from the distance. We all need to do that. But I would rather see someone step in life on life relationally, make a difference in the church, instead of standing at a difference and throwing rocks. At the church. So I believe with all my heart, not only for the church of Nazarene, but the church literally around the world, if you will be as the people of God, allow God to cut your heart. Change your life. Lay the things down that have kept you from following after him. Take up the things that are part of what it means to see the image of God restored in your life. If you leave those things, step into those things, make him Lord of your life, and involve yourself in what it means to be added a part of the story of God the life of the church, the very bride of Christ. And I've got a great resonating hope. And what I know inside of me is when I look out across this room, that that hope resides right here, in this place, in this space. So my question is very simple. Have you been cut? Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, there's none like you. Humbly, God, we've come this morning just to say, Lord, we worship you and we thank you 
for helping us, dear God, to have ears to hear and the privilege, dear God, in the activity of our will to respond to whatever it is you're calling us to do, Lord. I, I can't go like you and stop at every seat and ask, what is this for you? Where does he need to cut? Where is he not, Lord? Where do you need to hear the proclamation of truth and receive it into your life and let it begin to make that transformational difference? Lord, I, I can't do the details, but the awesome thing about you is that you can and you do and you are right now. Stop before each of us, whisper your truth, and give us courage to respond. In the name of Christ, I pray. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures.